0: Mysteries to Die For is supported by Down and Out Books and Forced Perspective by Colin Campbell. When Cops Collide Boston Cop Jim Grant enlists ex-cop Vince McNulty for a sting in Palm Springs. The plan is almost derailed when Grant and McNulty protect a receptionist from an angry biker. In the end, though, it goes off without a hitch. For a Colorado crime lord, Palm Springs is a dry run for a bigger payoff. The Angry Biker and Heavy Snow means this time there will be blood, and death, and a very big hitch. Forced Perspective by Colin Campbell. Read it and weep. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. This is season three, Enter the Detective. This season contains adaptations of the first cases for detectives. Some will be characters you know from books, stage, and screen. Others will be lesser known, but with great stories that influence those that followed. This is episode 10, and it's about solving money problems permanently. This is Poirot and the Affair at Styles, an adaptation of Agatha Christie's the Mysterious Affair at Styles. Well, Jack, of all the adaptations we've done so far, I will admit that this one intimidated me. I mean, we've made adaptations of some of the greats, but I mean, Agatha Christie is definitely top of the food chain. And it took me some time to figure out how to approach it. In the end, I wrote the story from the perspective of of a fan. I love Agatha Christie's stories, and I hope that comes through. The murder weapon in this first Poirot mystery is strychnine, a poison. I don't know much about poison, so I thought we would explore a little. The word poison evolved from the Latin, I'm gonna say it potio, which means potion. Then it evolved through Old French to poisson, which does not mean fish, but magic potion, and then to Middle English, where it started being pronounced as poison and denoted a harmful medicinal draft. The current common definition from the Oxford language dictionary is, quote, a substance that is capable of causing illness or death of a living organism when introduced or absorbed. Think about how many things Jack fit that definition but aren't labeled as poison. Do you think fewer people would try math if it was called poison instead of ice? I don't think he's listening, even though he's playing.
1: What, what am I supposed to say to that? <laughs> what am I supposed to say about the crystal meth question, huh?
0: I don't know. Like, do you think that things, if they didn't have such nice names, like, like would you, like, shoot bleach into your veins? Like, no, it's bleach. Like, it's horrible. But so you call it something nice and people are like, oh, yeah, let me uh, let me, in- oh, yeah, ingest let me just, that. You know, try a little
1: meth methamphetamine, you know, just for fun
0: you know? <laughs> Huh,
1: you know, just try it a little out, you know, just smoke. It's just it's fine, mom. It's just one time
0: It's just, just one, fine.
1: It's just one.
0: I did find other crystal. definitions So in chemistry poison is a substance that reduces the activity of a catalyst and in mm-hmm. physics Poison is an additive or impurity in a nuclear reactor that slows a reaction by absorbing neutrons. I thought that these were interesting takes on the idea of a poison as a substance that disrupts the existence or the process of the thing it's introduced to. So, like many poisons, strychnine is naturally occurring. Strychnose is a genus of flowering plant that includes trees and thick vines. The source I used identified 53 species in the Janus. Uh, one of those was Strychnos nux vomica. I apparently can speak Latin as well as I can speak French. And it's a tree native to the tropical Asia. The nux vomica tree is a full leafy tree with pretty fruit and there's-
1: Hold on, I have to stop you because I'm gonna be honest with you. I've been paying attention. Why are we talking about fruits? <laughs>
0: <laughs> because the seeds of the Nux Vomica tree um, are 1.5% strychnine.
1: That doesn't answer my question.
0: Why we're talking about fruit?
1: I said, why are we talking about fruit? Well, the seeds are actually strychnine. Yes. Ah, uh, yes, that explains why Agatha Christie. So Christy strychnine was
0: the poison used in this murder we're about to read. Oh. And so I was diving into where it came from and it is naturally occurring. It comes from a seed And it's a neurotoxin and it targets the motor nerve fibers in the spinal cord that control muscle contraction So the strychnine disrupts the normal process for signaling muscle movement Making activation easier which causes spastic muscle contractions You know how on uh on commercials for pharmaceuticals they list like all those side effects it could have this stuff's pretty nasty these are just the ones that i could pronounce seizures hyperthermia rapid heartbeat hypertension rapid breathing cyanosis that's when you turn blue sweating facial spasms back spasms and yeah there is a whole other list i couldn't pronounce The mechanisms of death, how you actually die from strychnine poisoning, are cardiac arrest, respiratory failure, organ failure, or brain damage. All lovely ways to die. Not surprisingly, strychnine was used as a rat and other animal poison. But just as much, strychnine was used and still is used as a medicinal ingredient in elixirs. So modern medicine moved away from strychnine decades ago, like a hundred years ago. But homeopathic remedies still use it. A quick internet search found a hangover cure called Nux Vomica, just like the tree name, and the back label said that each pellet contained less than 10 milligrams of strychnine, but it recommends up to five pellets three times a day for upset stomach, nausea, heartburn, and acid indigestion caused by excessive eating or drinking. Okay, now that we know what strychnine does, it's really hard to connect something that disrupts motor control with something that stops nausea and heartburn. Sources cited on Wikipedia identified lethal doses of strychnine as low as 30 milligrams and as high as 120 for humans. So here's a thought if you feel crappy after eating and drinking too much, stop eating and drinking too much, go for a walk, drink water. Don't fix it by taking poison. That's our public service announcement. Don't fix it by taking poison. your turn,
1: Jack. I was just jamming out. Anyway, Agatha Christie was born. Oh. Uh, anyway, Agatha Christie was born Agatha Mary Chris, C- Clarissa Miller in ni- 18, 1890. Jesus. I mean, Jesus. She was born and raised in the seaside town of Turkey on the English Channel and Devon. That's Turkey, right? That's how you spell I, pronounce I, it. I don't know how to say it. I guess I should look that part up. Uh, Turkey. Uh, she was the youngest of three, several years younger. Uh, I'm having issues, brain. Uh, she was the youngest of three, several years younger than her siblings. Uh, her father was American and homeschooled his daughter. Uh, her father, who had been sickly, died when she was 11. Sucks. I'm not going to go into all of Agatha Christie's stories and books. Instead, we picked some of the things we found more interesting. We say we, but we both know that I'm like the dad on Christmas who has just as surprised at what the kids get for Christmas <laughs> as the kids are. You know, uh, when she was five, Agatha Christie's family moved to France as a part of a managing uh, some financial difficulties. Wow. I totally already knew that. When she was 20, she and her mother went to Cairo. Cairo, Egypt, for three months, where she was exposed to local archaeological sites. Because that's important. During, sorry, I, yes, it's very important. During World War I, she worked uh, with the Voluntary Aid Detachment in a Red Cross hospital near her hometown of chicken. I'm sorry, Turkey. <laughs> Funny, in today's story, a character named Cynthia Murdoch does the same thing. In the war, there were Belgian refugees living across England, including Chicken. Uh, These transplanted men and women were her models for Hecule Perot. In December of 1926, Agatha Christie disappeared for 11 days as she and her husband were splitting. She left home without a word, and her car was discovered the following morning. The entire country was looking for her. She was discovered at a hotel in Yorkshire, suffering from memory loss. She never talked about this time, leading to conspiracy theories and a negative public reaction. That's... Out of all the things you listed, it was like, she moved to France when she was five. There were, you know, a lot of her inspiration came from, you know, refugees. She disappeared for 11 days. No one knows what happened to her and she suffered from memory loss. All just little quirky little things about her. (laughs) Did you know she she visited Egypt? She might have also seen Jesus when she disappeared for 11 days. Mom, I feel like these all weren't as important as each other.
0: Maybe not. I thought the first ones, they all came back into her writing and... That makes sense because, you know, especially when you're starting out, you write what you know. And this was her first book. So it made sense that if she was working in a hospital as a, uh, the equivalent of a pharmacist, that there's a character in this book that does that. The whole thing with her disappearing, I just, it it's just, I guess it's kind of like a traffic accident where you just can't help but look. Because I, I don't want to say it's cool because it's not cool. It's pretty frightening and everything, but you just read it and you're like, "Okay, that's that's something." Mhm. All right, we are nearly ready to begin. Well, well wait, Jack- wait, 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 wait. wait. Hmm? When did she die? Uh she you know why I didn't write that? Uh it wasn't too long ago. Um maybe it was like 1978.
1: So like this happened when she was what, 36 when she disappeared for 11 days?
0: Yeah. And she died when? I want to say it was after I was born. I want to say so it was like maybe late 70s. Uh,
1: did she suffer anymore from her memory loss stuff? Or was it just all one time? There thing?
0: wasn't a lot written about it. It was cited. There's a, a website, of course, dedicated to Agatha Christie and then some of the Wikipedia stuff. And it made it sound like, I guess, depending on how you read it, that you know, she was pretty emotionally distraught when her husband asked her for a divorce um, to marry another woman, and she went off, and they said her car was found the next day, and it was determined that she had taken a train to Yorkshire and had checked into a hotel under another name, and of course she was recognized because she was pretty famous, and um, when they talked to her and questioned her she she had this this memory lapse, and the doctors confirmed it was real. It really didn't talk anymore about it about how long it took for her memory to come back or 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 much after it, just that she never talked about it when she wrote her autobiography, she skipped over it altogether. weird anyway, all right, so it's time for our story. I'll explain why we're doing adaptations instead of performing these as written. Two reasons. The language from some of these mysteries date back to the 1800s, and it can be a little bit difficult to understand. The the speech cadence is just different. And second, the style and length of the stories, well, they weren't created for listening in this format. With these adaptations, we keep the heart of the story, preserving the groundbreaking narrative but updating the packaging for easier digestion. Character names are in the show notes. Make sure you got your uh, listening ears on and see if you can beat Poirot to who did it. So now we are ready for Poirot and the Affair at Styles. Jack, if you will take us in. Chapter One, Death Before Sunrise. The war the war waged on, but it felt like a world away from the country estate at Stiles Court, and I was grateful for it. While I was proud of my work and having achieved the rank of captain, I was in need of a respite. Thanks to the generosity of my friend, John Cavendish, I had found it, or I had thought I had, until knocking and voices in the hallway pulled me from my slumber. Indistinct sounds of people moving hurriedly roused me from bed. I pulled on my robe and ventured out. My hallway, the west hallway, was empty. The demanding voices came from the other wing of the U-shaped floor. I rounded the corner, crossed the stairwell landing, and entered the east hall. "'What's the matter?' I demanded as I rounded the corner and found John and his brother Lawrence outside their mother's door with one of the maids, a hearty woman named Dorcas. "'It's mother,' John said she pulled the bell for dorcas but we can't get in the door is locked something's wrong dorcas said something is dreadful wrong a strangled cry came from within john shook the door handle so vigorously had it been a chicken it would have been throttled we'll never get in lauren said holding the candle up to give his brother light what are we gonna do we'll have to break it down john said turning to us wait "'The connecting doors. Dorcas, does mother lock the doors?' "'The one to Miss Cynthia's room has always been bolted,' she said. "'I can't say about the door to her husband's room.' "'Alfred's it is.' John leapt to the next door with us in his wake. "'Dorcas, wake a maid and send for Dr. Wilkes,' he ordered. "'Then he opened the door. Inside was pitch dark. "'Lawrence's candle gave us enough light to see that the room was unoccupied. "'Where's Alfred?' I asked. Who the devil cares, John spat, as painful moaning came again. He went to throw open the connecting door, but it stayed shut. Damn, locked. See if you can find a key. I'll check Cynthia's door. Lawrence and I searched in earnest, but we had not found the key by the time John returned. Locked tight, he said. Mary is in there, shaking Cynthia awake. I think this door is somewhat thinner than the one in the hall. Hastings, with me. On three, I said. One, two, three. We hit the door with our shoulders. The door budged, but didn't break. The door withheld three more assaults, but not four. Mother! John ran to the convulsing figure on the bed. Hold on, the doctor is coming. Her breathing eased and she opened her eyes. A few more breaths and she could speak. Stupid of me, locking myself in. Don't worry about that now, John said. Let's get you some brandy. He looked around and found his wife in the doorway, her hands on the shoulders of a groggy Cynthia. Cynthia is shaken, Mary Cavendish said. Cynthia did appear dazed. Aunt Emily? John ignored her, speaking to his wife. Mary, get the good brandy. Hurry mary nodded and ran from the room she returned quickly too quickly for the brandy to have been downstairs then she pressed a glass of amber liquid to the ailing woman's lips that's it just a bit to calm you mrs inglethorpe slipped and then settled back against her pillows just as she looked to be over it all she convulsed again her face grimacing with the pain that racked her body john and mary held her down where's the doctor john shouted I stood in the back, horribly useless. The room was dark except for the light shed by the candle Lawrence carried, hovering behind his brother. A man hurried through the doorway. Dr. Bauerstein was a renowned physician and frequent guest at Styles. Mrs. Inglethorpe's gaze locked onto him. She fought through the seizure, her force of will pushing her lips to form the word Alfred Alfred all of her energy evaporated and she dropped boneless on her bed. Move aside, Bauenstein said calmly as he went to work. He bent to put his ear to her lips. He picked up her arms and moved them vigorously in what I recognize as artificial respiration. I glanced across the room. It wasn't yet five in the morning. The first rays of light were only a thought on the horizon when Mrs. Inglethorpe died. Her doctor arrived and was met with the grim news. He shook his head sadly. I told Mrs. Inglethorpe she had to take it easy. Her heart wasn't strong. Not at all. Dr. Bauernstein cocked his head and was about to say something until he realized he was in public. Dr. Wilkes, a word in private, please.
1: So obviously she was killed, right? Obviously. I mean, what would be the point of any of this? She wasn't killed. So she was killed, right? She was killed. Yeah, she's Boys. dead. She, yep. she, she was killed? Yeah,
0: the story would pretty much end if it had been a heart attack, right? Ah, well, thanks for watching, guys. Um, (laughs) Chapter 2, A World Upside Down I don't understand this, John said as he paced the parlor, his fists shoved deep in his pockets. She was perfectly fine last night. You saw her, Hastings. She was the picture of health she delivered the soliloquy as part of the festival just two nights ago how could she be dead this morning it was not a rhetorical question i started to respond but stopped what i was thinking was beyond bold what is it hastings john asked my face betraying more than i wanted it was a moment though that called for boldness you recall when we discussed my interest in criminal detection i glanced at mary lawrence and poor cynthia who swayed where she sat John ran his hand through his hair, impatient with the tangent I was taking him on. Yes, what of it? All the things you just said about your mother are true. I approached gently, for this was a very sensitive subject. I agree, her death doesn't feel right. I'd like to call in a friend of mine. You met him the other day when we were in the village. Mr. Poirot, Cynthia said. John recalled the name. The Belgian? One of those immigrants whose mother is supporting? Yes, I said. Monsieur Hercule Poirot was one of the most successful detectives in the Belgian police force before the war. Why do we need a detective? Lawrence asked. It was a heart issue. You heard Wilkes. Dr. Bauernstein didn't agree, Mary said. She turned to her husband. His expertise is poisons. If it were a heart condition, he wouldn't have asked us to leave. John went to Cynthia sitting beside her, putting his arm around her. You work at a dispensary. Could she have been poisoned? Cynthia leaned into his support, thinking before speaking. There are a number of compounds that, taken in large quantities, cause seizures and can lead to death. I don't know what a heart attack looks like. I'm not an expert in that. But how she died, it could be explained by poison. "'Ridiculous,' Lawrence spat, glaring at Cynthia and his brother. "'Who'd want to kill a 70-year-old woman? "'There was no one in the house but us!' "'John worried his lower lip and then rendered his decision. "'Bring your detective,' he said to me, then turned to his family. "'If it wasn't her heart, we need to know.' "'Lawrence threw up his hands, then ask the doctors. "'I shall fetch him myself,' I said. "'Before there was further objections, I ran to my room and dressed.'
1: It's Lawrence. He did it. He killed him. It's Lawrence. <laughs> That's well, your
0: early bet. Your early bet is Lawrence. Well, is this her first ever mystery murder? The first time she's ever been killed. Well, no. <laughs> oh, you mean Agatha no, like
1: Christie's? Because <laughs> she has been known for writing extremely complicated ones. Oh, so. she writes
0: very complicated ones, and she started off complicated off off the bat. Okay, maybe it's not Lawrence. <laughs> Fine,
1: I'll 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 hold my guesses till later.
0: Okay. Less than an hour had passed from the time curiosity had roused me from my bed. I stood outside the house seven displaced men shared. I I knocked loudly and persistently. Hastings, is that you? A familiar voice, heavily accented, called from above. Yes, Poirot. I stepped back so he could see my face. You are needed right away. I wouldn't provide more information in such a public setting. Fortunately, there wasn't a need. Poirot would intuitively understand a need for him meant a crime had been committed. An immediate need meant the worst kind of crime, murder. And finally, as he knew I was staying at Styles Court, it certainly involved his benefactor, his shrewd-eyed narrow. Come in while I dress, Monami. Tell me of the happenings. Seated in a comfortable chair in Poirot's room, I recounted the events from my leaving my room this morning to my arrival at his door do the doctors agree on a cause of death he asked they were still in conference when I left to find you I said I'm certain Dr. Bauerstein suspects poisoning he's an expert you know Poirot shrugged into his immaculate shirt how did it happen that this expert arrived before Mrs. Inglethorpe's own physician my jaw hung open I, I don't know Don't fret about it, he said. Waro, we'll learn all. Tell me about the characters in the drama I'm about to enter. John Cavendish is a friend of mine, I said, making it clear where my loyalties laid. He is about 45. His mother died when he and his brother were boys. His father remarried Mrs. Emily Cavendish, and she was the only mother they knew. When his father died, his will left Stiles Court for her use during her lifetime. Now that she has passed, John will inherit the manor. Very good, Poirot said. So there is not a money issue? Actually there is, I said uncomfortably. I felt like I was betraying a confidence, but Poirot would find out eventually. It was better coming from me. John told me the other day that he was pinched. His mother had been good to him before she remarried. Poirot gave a knowing little smile. Ah, the inserted new husband. Mr. Alfred Inglethorpe came to Styles as a secretary. He married his employer only eight weeks ago. The man is very unusual. He is about 50, with dark hair and a long black beard. He dresses most unusually. I can't get a read on him, to be honest. He doesn't talk much unless he's fawning over his wife. You say fawning with distaste, Hastings. I do, I said. Oh, he says the right things and all, but it feels contrived. The entire household feels the same. Mrs. Inglethorpe's companion, a Miss Evie Howard, was the only outspoken one. Now she parted with her employer over him. She wrote me earlier this week, all but begging me to watch over Mrs. Inglethorpe. She is relentless in her conviction that Alfred Inglethorpe was after his wife's money. Poirot nodded, and, "'There is a younger brother?' "'Yes,' I said, Lawrence Cavendish. "'He is about forty and the opposite of his brother. "'He began studying as a physician but never finished. "'He fancies himself a poet. "'He certainly has a creative spirit, "'but it is housed in the most indecisive soul I have ever met.' "'As the second son, would he have inherited?' Poirot asked. "'Not Styles Court,' I said. "'Not unless something happens to John.' his father provided for his future in his will but according to john lawrence has spent through much of it publishing his poetry poetry poirot repeated and are there others two ladies mrs mary cavendish she is alternately charming and cruel an excellent tennis partner she seems to prefer dr bauernstein's company to her own husband i did overhear a heated conversation between her and mrs Inglethorpe. Mary insisted her mother-in-law had something she should know about. Mrs. Inglethorpe didn't deny having it, but said it had nothing to do with Mary's concerns. Interesting, Poirot said. And did you learn what her concern was? I shook my head. Lastly is Miss Cynthia Murdoch. She is a ward of Miss Inglethorpe's and refers to her as Aunt Emily, although I do not believe there is a blood relationship. She is the most sound sleeper I have ever met. She would have slept through everything this morning if Mary hadn't roused her. Cynthia works at the Red Cross Hospital, in the hospital dispensary. She's in her twenties and is an intelligent, happy person. Lawrence and I visited her at work. There were more bottles in that room than I knew existed. Some of which were poison? Poirot asked. Well, I assume so, I said. You'll have to ask Cynthia. So I shall. Poirot tugged on his vest and turned around he was dressed as precisely as i remembered his small five foot four frame excellently displayed the gray suit with coordinating vest which was perfectly tailored his tie perfectly knotted his pants perfectly pressed he still carried his egg-shaped head tilted a little to one side decorated with a perfectly waxed handlebar mustache while parot was no longer in the prime of his life It grieved me more to see that the brilliant man now walked with a limp. With those two exceptions, he was every bit the unassuming, formidable man that I had known. I'm ready to visit your styles, Hastings. Chapter 3 the last night. Please, madame, do not disturb anything. Poirot inserted himself between Dorcas and the coffee cups left from the previous night. He turned to the room of expectant faces. I thank you all for assembling. I would like you to walk me through last night's dinner, s'il vous plait. John naturally took the lead. We ate supper together as usual. Mother was bothered by something. She was quieter than normal. After the meal, she asked Mary to bring her coffee into the boudoir. She had some letters she wanted to finish. I went to the library to take care of some business myself. I saw her into the boudoir, went into the library, and remained there until I spotted Dr. Bauerstein through the window some minutes later. I went to the kitchen for the coffee tray, Cook prepared, Mary said. I brought it to the parlor. We normally have coffee after dinner. Lawrence, Cynthia. Alfred and Captain Hastings were there when I arrived. "'It was a warm night,' Cynthia said, rubbing her head. "'We were sitting in the open window, watching the sunset.' Poirot leaned forward. "'Are you well, mademoiselle?' Cynthia n- nodded, but continued rubbing her temple. "'My head is pounding.' "'Ah, perhaps the good Dorcas will bring you coffee with sugar,' Poirot said, patting her hand. "'It is excellent for mal tête." As Dorcas rose, Cynthia quickly said, "'No sugar, Dorcas. I never take sugar in coffee.' Then she turned her attention back to the question at hand. "'Mary poured for me, Captain Hastings, and Lawrence.' Alfred stirred from the high-backed chair where he sat with the countenance of a bereaved man. I poured the coffee for my dear Emily. I took it to the boudoir, but she asked me to leave it on the table in the hallway. She was nearly finished with her letters and preferred to take it up to bed. He set it on the small table, Lauren said. I walked out of the parlor with him and heard the conversation as I began climbing the stairs. Alfred set the cup on the table and went back into the parlor and I went to my room to write. Mary pointed to the uncleared coffee cups. We sat watching the sunset. Cynthia was there, Captain Hastings there, myself, and then Alfred. Then John came in with Dr. Bauerstein. I saw him through the window, John repeated. The man was a mess. He ins- I insisted he come in and join us. Poirot raised a finger. Pardon, Monsieur John, but what do you mean by a mess? Well, he was covered in mud, John said. Bauerstein said he found a rare variety of fern. It was on the edge of a pond, and he fell trying to get it. As hot as the day was, he was no longer wet, but caked in dry mud. He didn't stay long, and when he rose to leave, Alfred went with him. Alfred nodded. I needed to see our account manager in the village and decided to walk with the doctor. I told John I would take a latchkey so no one would have to wait up for me. In my haste, I forgot it and so I spent the night in the village. He dropped his head into his hands. While my Emily was dying, I was sound asleep. My condolences, Monsieur Inglethorpe Poirot said. Was it your wife's habit to take her coffee to bed? Not at all, he said, lifting his face. She had no set routine. Sometimes she had coffee in the parlor. Sometimes she had it in the boudoir, especially if she had a lot of correspondence. Ah, I see, Poirot said. Thank you. What happened after Monsieur and the doctor left? We continued chatting, Cynthia said, accepting coffee from Dorcas. That is, until Aunt Emily called for me. She needed stamps and wanted to post her letters immediately. I left the parlor to help her. Hastings and I rose when Cynthia did, John said. We saw mother with her coffee cup in hand when she spoke to Cynthia and then she carried it upstairs. That was the last time I saw her. Mary, Cynthia, and I all agreed on this final point. It was now that the two doctors entered the parlor. They pulled John away from us and spoke in hushed tones. The color drained from his face. They think she was poisoned. I whispered to Poirot. Oh yes, he said, and began inspection of the coffee cups. From each one he took a sample, put it in a test tube, and sealed it. He also dipped his finger into the residue and tasted it. At Cynthia's cup, his head came up sharply. Something wrong, I asked. The mademoiselle said she does not take sugar in her coffee. No? Yes, I I mean correct, that is what she said. What of it? Oh, the doctors are leaving, I said, and hastened to join the family. What do they say, John? John fell heavily into the nearest chair. There's to be an inquest. Neither would issue a death certificate. They suspect strychnine poisoning. The room was abuzz with questions and declarations. Only one cried, though Dorcas, the maid. Chapter 4, The Scene of the Crime The bedroom had been sealed pending the investigation and post-mortem. The doctors had locked Alfred Inglethorpe's door. Mrs. Inglethorpe's door to the hallway and Cynthia's room had never been unlocked. John held the keys, which he gave to me for Poirot's inspection of the crime scene. We entered by the way of the hallway door. With the sun now fully risen, the room was awash with light. Poirot entered Mrs. Inglethorpe's room and set the case he carried on the small table. The table promptly spilled it onto the floor, something a precise man like Poirot did not approve of. Near where his case landed was a smashed remnants of a coffee cup. It wasn't merely broken, it was crushed as if a heel was used with intent. Undoubtedly, the table played the game on the coffee cup, no? Poirot knelt to examine the remnants carpet is wet it is a shame we'll never know what was in the cup i studied the crushed china is that where you think the strychnine was in her coffee cup it makes sense you know strychnine is a, a fast acting poison he said if it was in the coffee why did she die at five in the morning nearly seven hours after she consumed it Boiro rose and went to the chest of drawers on top was a small burner and a cup. He sniffed. Cocoa, he said. Then he dipped his little finger in. "'Sugar and rum, I believe.' He poured a sample into another tube and sealed it. Nearly instantly he was distracted by another stain on the floor, this one by the small writing desk. "'I hadn't noticed that before,' I said. It was invisible in the dark. Is it an old stain?' He shook his head. "'The candle wax is fresh.' If Dorcas had seen this, she would have used blotting paper and a hot iron to clean it. Mrs. Inglethorpe, then? No, mon ami, look around. He gestured around the room. There is no candle in here, just the reading lamp. He was right, of course. There was no candle. Lawrence had carried a candle into the room, but he was nowhere near the writing desk. From the desk, Poirot picked up a small case, similar to the one he carried. It was locked. But with the keys John had given us, Poirot was able to convince it to open. "'A useful talent,' he said, as he thumbed through paper. "'This is not for me, but should be gone through immediately.' He closed and relocked the case, returning it to the desk. Next, he inspected her wash basin, producing an empty box of sleeping powder. "'What do you notice about this, Hastings?' "'I inspected it, finding it to be an ordinary and empty box.' "'Nothing in particular,' I said. "'No,' he said. "'Is it common, then, to have a box without the name of the company that prepared it?' Embarrassed at my oversight, I admit what he knew. "'Ah, no, Poirot, that's not usual. "'I would think it was prepared in the village, though.' Poirot seemed displeased with the fireplace, with had ash under the grate. By contrast, he approved of the vases decorating the mantle, lined up like soldiers at attention. The adjoining door to Miss Cynthia's room was a subject of focused attention. Poirot inspected it closely, sliding the bar in and out, in and out soundlessly. Using a pair of tweezers, he removed something from the slide. See here, Hastings, fabric. It was a few fibers of dark green color. Dorcas said this door is never open, I said. Poirot cataloged this sample too. Believe this room has told us everything it knows. Let us see if the incredible Dorcas can add to our information. I relocked the door and led Poirot downstairs to Mrs. Inglethorpe’s boudoir. The room featured windows that opened to the north. Her large desk was positioned to take best advantage of the natural light. A smaller, more masculine desk was arranged in the opposite corner. Poirot pulled on the cord, and Dorcas arrived promptly, if not somewhat confused. "'Come in, my good Dorcas,' Poirot said, handing her his immaculate handkerchief. "'Please sit. I see you are most upset by Mrs. Inglethorpe's death. My condolences. "'Tell me, were you with her long?' "'Over fifteen years,' she said, sinking into a chair, dabbing at her tears. "'She was particular in her ways, but she was good to me.' "'But not to others? To her family?' Poirot asked. "'She looked ashamed of speaking against the family. "'I didn't mean to say that. "'You see, Mrs. Inglethorpe would do anything for them. "'For any of them. "'But she wasn't the kind to ever let them forget.' Poirot dismissed her faux pas with a wave of her hand. "'Tell me, did Mrs. Inglethorpe own a dark green dress?' "'Not dark green,' Dorcas said. "'She has one they called New Leaf Green.' pale green it was to me. Shall I get it? No, I think not, Poirot said. Did Mrs. Inglethorpe use sleeping powders? Sometimes, but she didn't use it last night. She couldn't, Dorcas said. She ran out two nights ago. She took an elixir nightly. Mr. Inglethorpe brought it to her before he went to bed. Except Monday night, with all the fuss of her reading for the village festival, she forgot to take it. It was there in the morning, so I left it for her to take last night. I was to go to the village today to pick up another bottle. I guess there's no point in that. No, madame, Poros said gently. There is not. There was cocoa sitting on her chest of drawers. Yes, Cook prepares it before she puts the vegetables on the stove. Annie, the upstairs maid, brings it up and leaves it on the table outside the door connecting our rooms. She brings it into the bedroom when she does her rounds to pull the curtains for the night. Mrs. Inglethorpe will reheat it if she cares for something hearty. If not, Annie clears it away in the morning. The front door slammed sharply. "'Who's there?' Cynthia called out. "'Evie! Evie, you're back!' I left Poirot's side to join the family in welcoming Evelyn Howard back to Stiles. The whole family fell upon her with sincere greetings. The only one absent was Alfred Inglethorpe, and likely it was for the best. I take it that weasel is still in the house, Evie said to John. I don't know why you put up with it. It's not like I can have him arrested, John said diplomatically. And why not? He did it. I know he did it, she declared. Poirot subtly inserted himself into the throng. Pardon me, mademoiselle. How is it that you know Monsieur Inglethorpe killed his wife? Miss Evelyn Howard, I said, this is Monsieur Hercule Poirot. He is investigating the circumstances of Mrs. Inglethorpe's death, privately, of course. I see, she said, looking the great detective over from the top of his head to his impeccable shoes. It can't be a coincidence, Mr. Poirot, that Emily marries that bearded mongrel and is dead eight weeks later. I don't believe in coincidence, so don't try to convince me. I do not believe in coincidence either, madame. Evie began to break down. I warned her. I warned her that there was no fool like an old fool. There was only one possible reason a man of his age would want a woman of horrors. I loved her, a voice said from above us. Alfred Inglethorpe stood at the top of the staircase. I saw Emily for the quick wit and tender heart she had, unlike all of you who live off her purse strings but give nothing for the lady holding them. Oh, a raucous broke out, with accusation and defending statements clashing in the air over the entryway. It was diffused when Alfred threw up his hands and retreated up the stairs. But to where, I don't know. The key to his own room was in my pocket. This is a good time for my exit, Poirot said to me. We have all we can learn from this house. It is time to broaden our search. He turned to John. Monsieur Cavendish, I will return after I have the answer to a few little questions. It's true then, John said, looking aghast. Mother was poisoned by one of us? Poirot gave a slight bow. That is still to be determined, but if it is true, Haku Poirot will prove it. Ça va? Chapter 5. Evidence Outside the House Poirot was quiet until we were out in the lane. A most complex case, Hastings. At the moment, we have more questions than answers. As there was only one question in my mind, I opened the door for further enlightenment. Questions such as? Poirot looked at me, a small grin on his face. Have you no questions, Hastings? I have many. For instance, who was in Mrs. Inglethorpe's room last night? departed lady did not drop wax onto her own carpet or qu- crush the coffee cup. Was the strychnine in the coffee cup? Maybe it was in the cocoa, I suggested. It was left out in the hall for a considerable length of time. Anyone could have tainted it. As was the coffee, he said. a strange habit of leaving food and drink in common ways, he said more to himself than to me. As nothing travels faster in a village than a secret, "'Everyone we met knew of Mrs. Inglethorpe's demise "'and the suspicion of strychnine poisoning. "'A pretty woman was walking toward us, "'having come from the village. "'That is Mrs. Rakes,' I said. "'There are rumors abound about her and Alfred Inglethorpe.' "'I took off my hat as she approached. "'Good morning, Mrs. Rakes.' "'Good morning, Captain Hastings. "'Is it true what they're saying about Mrs. Inglethorpe?' "'I introduced Poirot and confirmed that Mrs. Inglethorpe had died.' That poor man, she said compassionately, to lose his wife after a few months. I don't know what I would do if I lost Mr. Rakes. Please don't think poorly of me, Poirot said, but I understand that Mr. Inglethorpe frequented your company. Absolutely not, she said with no uncertainty. He is a charming man and offered to carry my parcels when we were going in the same direction. It is a shame when simple kindnesses are turned into something untoward. "'Indeed, Poirot,' said with a small bow. "'Now, when was the last time Mr. Inglethorpe performed such assistance?' "'She paused and thought. "'Why, it was Monday evening. "'He was going back to Stiles after working in the village. "'Mrs. Inglethorpe was giving a reading that night. "'He was very proud of her.' "'She looked to me. "'Please give him my condolences and to Mr. Cavendish, too.' "'I will, Mrs. Rakes.' With polite goodbyes, Poirot and I were on our way again, heading to the village. We met several others who expressed similar feelings toward Mr. Inglethorpe. It seemed for his short time in the village, he earned the respect of those he interacted with. Poirot led the way to one of the two apothecaries in the village. You prepared Mrs. Inglethorpe's elixir, no? Mr. Mace was weak-jawed and paled with the news. "'No,' Mace said, "'the manor uses Mr. Wills.' "'But,' Mr. Mace,' Poirot said, "'you have not said it, but Poirot hears it.' "'But,' Mace said, "'I did sell strychnine to Mr. Inglethorpe on Monday. "'He said it was for a sick dog at Styles. Poirot gave a small smile. "'What time would this have been? "'Early? Maybe four or five o'clock?' May shook his head. It was right before closing, just before seven. Poirot lifted his hat. Thank you, monsieur. You have been very helpful. I contained myself until we were out on the street. What do you think, Poirot? How could he sell Inglethorpe poison when Inglethorpe was on the other side of the village with Mrs. Rakes? An excellent question, he said. It is a trick for a man to be in two places at once. At the other end of the village was a formulary run by Mr. Wills. Yes, I made Mrs. Inglethorpe's elixir, Wills said. She has been using the same formula for about two years, prescribed by Dr. Wilkes for her heart. Do you have a list of the ingredients? Poirot asked. Certainly. Wills turned to a large cabinet and opened the drawer labeled C. Here it is. iod, caffeine, and strychnine in an aqueous solution. "'Strychnine,' I stammered. "'It was in her medicine? Is it safe?' "'At the prescribed quantities,' Wills said. "'If taken all at once, it would be problematic.'" "'Monsieur Wills, do you recall a case when a lady lost her life when the strychnine in her elixir precipitated into crystals?' "'It has become a textbook case,' Wills said, turning to refile the card.'" The elixir contained potassium bromide, which reacted with the strychnine to create crystals that settled to the bottom of the bottle. The poor women had all the strychnine in a single dose, which was lethal. Strychnine seizes the muscles, you see, including those in the lungs, which suffocates the victims. The image of Mrs. Inglethorpe on her bed in the throes of a seizure returned to me. A painful, horrible death. The onset of seizures is quick, is it not? Poirot asked. Oh, yes, Wills said. Minutes, depending on the dose, of course. Of course, our thanks to you, Monsieur Wills. Come, Hastings, let us be on our way. Once out on the street, Poirot shook his head. Strychnine, strychnine, everywhere, we are awash in it, Hastings. Chapter 6. The Will, the Inquest, and Two Arrests. Later that day, we returned to Stiles, meeting John and Mrs. Inglethorpe's solicitor, who was also the coroner. We four returned to Mrs. Inglethorpe's boudoir to examine her documents. The solicitor-coroner brought the will with him. After some gifts to Dorcas and the other staff, her fortune was left to John. Poirot looked at him with interest. Mother understood I would need it to run Stiles' court, he said. My father left me the estate, but not the means to keep it. He left Lawrence enough to sustain himself and left it to my mother to take care of the rest. "'Tell me, Monsieur Cavendish,' Poirot said. "'What would have happened had the will not provided the funds?' "'I... I shudder to think, Monsieur Poirot.' The solicitor coroner reviewed her desk. "'Is this all her papers? I expected a few more.' Likely they're in her room,' John said. She kept her important documents in her case. John led the way upstairs, unlocking her bedroom. He went directly to her desk and the case Poirot had examined that morning. Here you are. Wait, Poirot said sharply. You had the key to the case? I didn't need it, John said. It wasn't locked. Poirot froze and then broke into a blistering admonishment of himself. Poirot had locked the case. I saw him. He went to the fireplace, his hands on the mantel. I had never seen him so shaken. Literally, as he straightened the staggered vases in the manner of he, Uh, okay, let's try that sentence again. As he straightened the staggered vases in the manner of his, his hands were shaking. I apologize," he said a few minutes later. "I took it for granted the case would be safe within a locked room. That was not the case, and now something of great value is missing. What is missing?" John asked. "I do not know," Poirot said. "But it was worth taking." a great risk. The postmortem confirmed death by strychnine poisoning and provided no direction on how it was administered. That continued to raise questions as the likeliest means did not coincide with the time of death. The day of the inquest came and the solicitor slash coroner walked through the facts and the witnesses in an orderly fashion. Much was a repeat of what we'd already learned both in terms of facts and personalities. Everyone in the house testified, including E.V. Howard, who had no reservations about telling the jury that Alfred Inglethorpe was responsible. Inglethorpe denied every accusation leveled against him but did not provide an accounting of his time on that Monday evening. It was as if the man was inviting Scotland Yard to arrest him. John did not come out unscathed that his inheritance was a topic of extended conversation, as was his current financial situation. The jury retired and came back with the verdict of willful willful murder against some person or persons unknown. Speaking of Scotland Yard, two inspectors were in the audience. Poirot intercepted them after the proceedings, introducing me to Detective Inspector James Japp. He, in turn, introduced us to his companion, Superintendent Summerhay. "'I hardly need to ask what you are doing here, gentlemen,' Poirot said." "'No, monsieur, this case is pretty clear,' Jap shrugged. "'You would think they know that we look first and hardest at the husband.' "'You have a warrant?' Poirot asked, then shook his head. "'It would be a mistake to arrest monsieur Inglethorpe at this time. "'It would not last and thus not look favorably upon you.' "'Jap raised a hand in silence to Summer Hay. "'Do you have proof, Poirot? "'You know what your word means to me, but I need more.' A short time later, we were convened again in Stiles' parlor. The Scotland Yard officials introduced themselves and then put the question to Alfred Inglethorpe that he refused to answer on the stand. Where were you Monday evening from four until eight in the evening? Alfred answered the same way as he did the coroner, I don't remember exactly. I believe I was out walking. It was a lovely day. Monsieur Poirot interrupted, Understand where you are standing. There has been leveled a great accusation against you. The truth is needed. If you do not provide it, I shall. Alfred jolted as Poirot had succeeded in surprising him, but he recovered and held his ground. As I said, I was walking. Jap and Summerhay turned to Poirot. He was walking with Mrs. Rakes, the wife of a local farmer. Mrs. Rakes will testify and here are the names of five witnesses who saw them at the time he was supposedly purchasing strychnine." Alfred let out a long, sorrowful sigh. "'There are already rumors, untrue rumors,' his gaze slid to his family members. "'My Emily is not yet buried. I had no interest in feeding that vulturous machine or damaging Mrs. Rakes' reputation. Looks as if you lost one of your toys.' Mary Cavendish said, her barbed aimed at her husband, not Alfred. Poirot cocked his head. Madam, what is that costume you are wearing? Mary looked down at herself. She wore a white shirt and breeches with dark green overcoat. I run the estate dairy, she said. These are the clothes I wear. They aren't as elegant as my gowns, but they're more suited for the job. Your sleeve has a tear, Poirot said, pointing to the frayed tip in the material. She nodded. It's hard work. Something's always getting damaged. C'est la vie, as you would say. Jap and Summerhay asked many questions, covering ground already trampled. When John saw them to the door, Dorcas waved her handkerchief, getting mine and poor Rose's attention. I had an idea, she said. In the attic is a chest of old clothes the young gentleman used to make costumes. There might be something in that that would meet the description of green material. There was no great difficulty finding the trunk. Within was nothing that matched the fibers taken from Mrs. Inglethorpe's door, but there was something much more interesting. A fake black beard was at the bottom, trimmed to be a duplicate of Alfred Inglethorpe's. Someone impersonated him, I said. Poirot nodded. Exactly, Hastings. Now The following day, I walked to the village to meet Poirot and begin our day's work. As I approached his cottage, I met Mr. Wills from the apothecary, who informed me that Dr. Bauernstein had been arrested. I expected as much, Poirot said when I told him. He murdered Mrs. Inglethorpe, I said, utterly confused. No, bon ami, he was arrested for espionage. He is a spy, Poirot said. Did you not think it odd that he was awake, dressed, and near to Styles at that time in the morning? I suppose I did, I said. And then his story about falling into the pond trying to retrieve a fern. Was just that, Poirot said. A story. Now let us get to work. I have the makings of a solution, but I am missing a piece that ties it all together. It is there, and try as it might, it won't escape me. We arrived at Styles to find the household again in chaos. I caught Dorcas as she hurried by. What has happened now? They've arrested Mr. Cavendish, she said, then broke down crying. They've arrested John. John Cavendish was remanded for trial. This was not a surprise as, strategically, his defense was safe for the trial. Three months later, in a London courtroom, the trial began. Poirot had traveled with the family. Mary Cavendish had thrown aside her cutting remarks to become her husband's champion. Lawrence Cavendish had withdrawn more and more any talk of the possibility of John's conviction caused the little color he had to drain from his face. Even Cynthia Murdoch's sunny disposition faded under the weight of the trial. She seemed a shift, a ship adrift at sea. With Mrs. Inglethorpe gone, she threw herself into her work at the hospital and working for Mary at Stiles. Evie Howard stayed at Styles, telling anyone willing to listen that Alfred Cavend- that Alfred Inglethorpe was getting away with murder. And Alfred Inglethorpe had moved from Stiles to the village inn. It brought some measure of quiet to a house that was far from peaceful. Poirot continued to work. He talked at length about the missing link. He assured the family, as well as myself, that John would be acquitted, which led me to believe that he had another suspect in mind. The trial opened with the prosecutor's description of John as a thieving scourge akin to the pirate Captain Kidd. For any of us that knew John, the metaphor was ridiculous. But for the twelve men in the jury who had never met or heard of John, the description had them frowning in disapproval. The prosecution methodically showed John needed the money, that he had an argument with Mrs. Inglethorpe the day before her death, and that her her will bequeathed him a fortune the defense began with witnesses to John's character who in my opinion made progress undoing the damage done by the prosecuting's opening statement court adjourned for the day with the family terrified of a conviction the trial did not go well today Perot said thoughtfully "Ah, if only I could find the last link over and over I go through the case in my head he opened one hand I know what happened here He opened the other hand, and I know what happened here. But between them, he fisted his hands and shook them. I was taken aback at the emotion. It will come, Poirot. Your hands are shaking. It happens, he said, in the rare times I am angry. Your hands shook that day in Mrs. Inglethorpe's bedroom, I said. I notice when you fix the vases on on her mantle the way you do. Poirot gasped. That is it! That is it, mon ami! Quickly! "'I need a car. I must return to Stiles.' "'I'm going with you,' I said. "'No, Hastings. I need you to stay here. "'Contact D.I. Jap. "'Arrange for him to be at the Cavendish Town Hall in the morning.' "'He turned to go, but I caught his arm. "'Tell me what you suspect.' "'I was damn near pleading. "'This was an ingenious plan. "'Most ingenious. "'One that would have been easier to solve "'if it not for a jealous woman and a lovesick man. "'That will have to hold you until tomorrow.' eight in the morning, have everyone assembled.
1: That feels very Scooby-Doo-esque. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you anything. Just have the police there. And then Valmo will explain everything as he unmasks the same killer eight times.
0: Don't you notice how so many of these do that? Uh, especially where where the detective himself's not telling the story. And mm-hmm. I mean, for somebody who loves puzzles, it does drive me a little bit crazy. And I actually shared a lot more in this portion of the story up to now than in the original just because of our format and the way we have to do it but yeah no Parrow doesn't give up much poor hastings is left floundering and making many 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 wrong guesses so uh can you explain the espionage dude so i cut most of that just for length but this dr bauernstein just keeps sort of popping up and he's spending a lot of time with mrs mary cavendish and, um, yeah, it turns out that he was a spy. For I don't who? know what he was spying on, not understanding the geography. They were in Essex. I don't really quite understand the relevance of that in World War One. But he was, I, I, I don't know. I can't. I can only say that it was in the original story. And so I carried it over. Huh. Okay. I think he was a red herring. Since he skulks about so much, it was left that, Oh, it could have been Bauerstein because, you know, he keeps popping up in weird places and,
1: and it's like, Oh, he was arrested for something completely different. He yep, was a Yeah. Completely
0: different. Ah uh, Okay, so now so now let's look at our cast of characters here and tell me who you think did it.
1: Okay, okay.
0: Okay, so it's not Bauerstein.
1: It's not Bauerstein.
0: Since John is arrested and under trial, we can safely say it is not John. It is not John. Okay. So who's left? We have his brother, Lawrence. Lawrence. We have Alfred, the husband who was accused of doing it in the first place. Uh, he can't be him. That's not,
1: you know, it's not good.
0: We have the three women. We have Mary. Mary. We have Evie Howard. Evie Howard. And we have the young Cynthia Murdoch.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Those are our suspects.
1: I'll be honest, I couldn't keep any of the three women separate during the entire story. Yeah. So, if it's one of them, I automatically lose. <laughs> just by default, so that's my bad. Um, I'm going to go with Lawrence, my, my first guess.
0: Your first guess. <laughs> like, well,
1: it didn't talk much about him after she actually died. They haven't addressed him much, have they?
0: Or no, no, we haven't. Lawrence just kind of muddles through the background like he's Hastings describes him as just being very um, indecisive and so he kind of floats in and floats out but he doesn't he doesn't get a whole lot of air time
1: that's perfect Agatha Christie set up for him to be the big guy yeah half the stories she has the, the bad guy is only has like three lines in the whole
0: I sto- think that's good too
1: <laughs> I mean, so I'm going to go with it. Uh, okay, you're going harder. with Lawrence. Uh-huh, uh-huh, Lawrence.
0: Well, before we get back to the story, I want to tell listeners that my next novel, Raising Stakes, number three in the De La Cruz case file, is available for pre-order right now. It is coming out on February 14th. Always a good day for a murder mystery to come out. So here's a little bit about it. The first day of summer is the last day of a young accountant's life. Colin McHenry is out for his regular run when an SUV crosses his path, crushing him. Within hours of the hit skip, Cleveland homicide detective Jesus de la Cruz finds the vehicle in the owner's garage, who's on vacation three time zones away. The setup is obvious, but not the hand behind it. The suspects read like a list out of a textbook. The t- jilted fiancé, the jealous coworker, the overlooked subordinate, the dirty client. Raising Stakes, De La Cruz number three. Pre-order it now. I would really appreciate it. All right, Jack, let's move on to chapter seven. The Last Link. The following morning, Superintendent Summerhay and Detective Inspector Japp were seated at one end of the parlor sipping their coffees. The Cavendishes, Cynthia Murdoch, Evie Howard, and Alfred Englethorpe were spread across the remaining furniture, all tense and uncomfortable. This is ridiculous, Captain Hastings, Evie Howard said rising. How long are we supposed to wait? It was Jap who answered, Until I say, sit down, Miss Howard. Please, he added as an afterthought. Would you like more coffee, Dorcas asked Jap yes thank you it is excellent Jap said holding out his cup the front door opened moments later poirot entered the parlor my apologies the train was delayed regrettable but beyond my control coffee monsieur dorcas offered a cup ah the wonderful dorcas yes yes thank you poirot said taking it Jap cleared his throat poirot oh yes yes poirot said looking around the room you are all here "'As I am here, too, we can now shed light on this mysterious affair at Styles. "'He sipped and then set the coffee down. "'It goes without saying that John Cavendish did not murder Mrs. Inglethorpe.' "'Mary Cavendish jumped to her feet, pointing her finger at the Scotland Yard men. "'As I told you to from day one.' "'And neither did you, Madame,' Poirot said. "'Mrs. Cavendish suspected that her husband was having an affair.' She thought Mrs. Englethorpe had proof of this and confronted her, the conversation Captain Hastings partially overheard. She was told the letter in question had nothing to do with her suspicions. But you didn't believe her, did you? Mary sank onto the couch. I didn't, she said. I was certain she was protecting John. I needed to know who he was seeing. She dropped her head to her chest. And so, Poirot said... "'You doctored Mrs. Inglethorpe and Mademoiselle Cynthia's coffees.' "'What?' Cynthia snapped her hand to her throat. "'You did what?' "'An opioid caused you to sleep deeply, Miss Cynthia,' Poirot explained. "'So deeply, you slept through Madame entering your room "'and going through the connecting door into Mrs. Inglethorpe's room. "'She was looking through the desk when Mrs. Inglethorpe awoke. "'Startled to find someone in her room, she pulled the bell for Dorcas.' You spilled the candle wax. You crushed, crushed the cup. I did, Mary Cavendish said. I did. He, she shouted at me and then she gasped. I hurried to leave. I knew she called Dorcas. I tried to get to the bathroom, but Dorcas was too fast. I was trapped in Cynthia's room. Mary used the door? Lawrence asked. Not Cynthia? Poirot nodded. You saw the bolt was not in the normal position, Monsieur Lawrence. You incorrectly thought Cynthia had been in the room, and put it back in place to protect her. Cynthia moved to the couch where Lawrence sat alone, facing him. Why would you do that? Lawrence's gaze swept over her face, but he didn't answer. And so Poirot did. Because he loves you, Mademoiselle. He has for a long time. Is he correct? she asked, asked Lawrence he finally found his voice i do the first time i saw you poetry filled my heart i love you cynthia cynthia leaned forward covering lawrence's hand with hers i never knew she whispered mary cleared her throat monsieur Poirot, are you certain yes madame i am certain the sleeping powder did not kill mrs inglethorpe I am sure you have had many a bad night, your husband standing trial for a murder you thought you committed. The sleeping draft did not kill her, but it did have a significant role in protecting the killer. You see, strychnine kills relatively quickly. All logic said Mrs. Inglethorpe ingested the poison between 7 and 9 at night, but she died at 5 the next morning. My little gray cell struggled to understand. The answer was in the coffee cups. Mademoiselle Cynthia said she never takes sugar in her coffee, yet the residue in hers was not coffee alone. Jap understood. The opioids slowed digestion, delaying the onset of the strychnine. But Summerhayes said, "Wasn't the strychnine in the coffee?" Poirot shook his head. Strychnine was not added to the coffee, nor the cocoa, nor, any, nor anything else. It was in her medicine, as it had been for years. Then why was it fatal, Summer Hay asked. Mademoiselle Cynthia, Poirot said, can you tell us what happens when potassium bromide and strychnine are in solution? Cynthia shifted to face Poirot, Lauren sliding to her side. Why, a crystal will precipitate, collecting at the bottom, she gasped. Aunt Emily's sleeping powder was potassium bromide. Exactly, Poirot said with a slight bow of his head. The sleeping powder was added to her elixir, settling the strychnine to the bottom, making the last dose, whenever she took it, most deadly. Which brings us to our killer, the person who gave Mrs. Englethorpe her medicine lightly. Lawrence jumped to his feet. "'You!' he shouted at Alfred Englethorpe. "'It was you the whole time!' "'Not again,' Englethorpe said with an exhausted anguish. "'Yes, again,' Poirot said. Monsieur Englethorpe had a plan from the time he arrived to marry Emily Cavendish and walk away with her fortune. But Poirot, you stopped us from arresting him, Jap charged. Because, Poirot said, you would have stepped right into his plan. Your British law does not allow someone who is acquitted to be tried for a crime again. Monsieur Englethorpe wanted to be arrested, arraigned and tried. Then he would have brought out Mrs. Rakes and the jury would acquit. It doesn't make sense, Mary said. John inherited, not Alfred. Summerhay answered. Her will would have lost effect when she married. John would not have inherited. I'm done listening to this, Alfred said, rising. You two have you have crafted a very creative story, Poirot, but you have two problems. First, you have no proof, and second, it isn't true. Jap rose, stepping into his path, I'd like to hear the rest of the story. Please continue, Poirot. Monsieur Inglethorpe did not act alone, Poirot said. It is only explanation for how he could be both with Mrs. Rakes and at Mace's apothecary on Monday. It was the accomplice that dressed in the beard and glasses and brought the strychnine to implicate Monsieur Inglethorpe. Is that not so, Madam Howard? The room gasped as Evie surged to her feet. How dare you! I had nothing to do with dear Mrs. Inglethorpe's death, and to be accused of helping him! I hate him! Yes, Madame, Poirot said. You are very vocal, too vocal. Your distaste was most unnatural. Evie faced Poirot squarely. You are wrong. Poirot is not wrong. He handed a letter to Jap. Please read. Jap gently held the paper that had been torn into three strips and reassembled. "'Evelyn, we are so close, my darling. Be patient just a little longer. Events have adjusted our plans, but it will be—' "'That's where it ends,' Jap said. "'Mr. Inglethorpe was interrupted,' Poirot said, and hurriedly hid the letter. He never expected his wife, and her search for stamps, would find it. Still, he knew where she kept important papers and broke into the room to retrieve it, taking a great risk. He was short on time, so he hid it in the vase on the mantel, intending to go back later. The opportunity never came. "'Let me see the handwriting,' Lawrence said." Inglethorpe ripped the letter from Jap's hand, lowered his shoulder, and hit the detective inspector. The surprise shot had Jap staggering backwards, creating an opportunity for the killer to slide through. Summerhay closed the gap and collared Inglethorpe in a practice move. By luncheon, John Cavendish was back home, he and Mary as affectionate as newlyweds. Lawrence and Cynthia were breaking decorum, not having relinquished each other's hands since morning, and Dorcas fluttered around the house, delighted to have her young gentleman happy and home. All is well, Poirot said as we left the house. Monsieur Englethorpe was crafty. To want to be arrested and tried. Poirot shook his head. Who would think of such a thing? You did, I said. The once and still great Haku Poirot. Not Lawrence. Yeah,
1: well, to be fair, it felt like Alfie was a little obvious. So <laughs> I was never I was never gonna go with the uh, Alfalfa there. In I a was, strange
0: uh, way, his accomplice Evie was the only one, like, who told the truth the whole time because she kept saying Alfred did it, Alfred did it, and you know what? Yeah, Alfred did it. <laughs>
1: uh, I mean, it was funny because, like, if you make everybody point at the obvious guy, then everyone was like, uh, the detective Perot was like, can't be obvious guy, but it was obvious guy. He knew that
0: <laughs> because you want me to think that you think that I don't know what you exactly. think, but I. <laughs> all right so let's check the logic of this so i always love agatha christie's characters and the root of her mysteries like we just talked about they are incredible as a puzzle lover i do take issues with the way she holds back information make it virtually impossible for me to solve the puzzle alongside Poirot or marple and as you all saw with the format we're using here i did pull some of those golden nuggets forward with the body of the story So, let's check the logic. So having taken a position with the elderly Mrs. Emily Cavendish, Evie Howard sees the potential for a big payday. Conspiring with Alfred Inglethorpe, they hatch hatch, and execute a plan to position Alfred to inherit the Cavendish fortune. The plan includes getting Alfred into the house and Evie's distrust and dislike of Alfred. There's no way to connect the two together. As Evie says later, there is no fool like an old fool. Mrs. Cavendish falls for the adoring attention of a younger man and quickly marries him. Okay, that all makes sense. They devised a plan for poisoning, knowing Scotland Yard would look at Alfred. The plan included actions that pointed to Alfred while he built an Ironclad alibi for the time of his wife's death. Once tried and acquitted, her fortune would be his. Again, good plan. The misguided actions of Mary Cavendish with the opiates, and Lawrence Cavendish with the lock aided, with the lock aided Alfred and Evie. Now, lovers of Agatha Christie know how detailed and intricate her stories are. Like Jack said, and this first one's no exception. A number of subplots didn't make the cut for this podcast just for time, and that includes multiple and contradictory wills, Dr. Bauernstein's spying. And Hastings' various and wrong ideas. There are a few things that made me roll my eyes. So it's heavily implied that Evie Howard impersonated Alfred and bought the strychnine from Mace. So she wore the beard, the glasses, the hair, the clothes, all the things that people recognize as Alfred. Okay, but. Evie wasn't living at Styles when she impersonated Alfred, which means she brought the beard with her when she returned to Styles after Mrs. Inglethorpe's death. She not only brought the beard with her, but she went up to the attic and hid it under the dress-up clothes. Why? Why would she do that when she could have hidden it where she was living or where she was working? I could buy that maybe she didn't want to destroy it just in case she needed it, but why bring it back to Styles? And then there is the uh, letter that Alfred wrote to Evelyn. The First issue is that he wrote it at all. After establishing a clear disconnect between he and Evie, why would he write a letter that undid that work? And then after he recovers it from Mrs. Englethorpe's bedroom, rather than remove it, he tears it into three strip and hides it in a vase and then never goes back for them. I had to reread the end of the story a few times to be sure of this, Poirot clicks on that the vase was moved during John's trial, but that's some three months later. And yet he goes back to Stiles and he still finds the letters there. Okay, there's a couple issues there. So these last actions of Alfred and Evie are, in my opinion, and it is only my opinion, inconsistent with the masterminds that created the Double Jeopardy plot. Now, they don't take away from the genius of the story. And, well, the story probably couldn't have been solved without them. So there's that. Well, that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by subscribing, telling us mystery lover about us, and giving us a five-star review. You're in- personally invited to become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation pay what you can information is in the show notes and on our website tgwolf.com forward slash podcast mysteries to die for is written by tg wolf with contribution from jack wolf poirot and the affair at styles was written by tg wolf adapted from the mysterious affair at styles by agatha christie music and production are by jack wolf episode art is by tg wolf we look forward to seeing you all in 2 weeks for another amazing mystery. Jack, take us out.
1: I'm going to be honest, I haven't been playing very well on that that last 30 seconds here. I just been hitting That, a lot that of last wrong one was, chords. was 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 a little dissonant. Yeah. Why don't you try yeah.
0: something else to take people on a more harmonious note?
1: Harmonious. Okay. I know what that word means as a as soon to be music major. <laughs> I'm just not doing this right, am I? All right, let's let's do a different chord.
0: Much, much better. That was nice.